You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Welcome to episode 54. Our one year anniversary is coming up next week, and I am so excited to celebrate with you. This has been an incredible ride for me. I'm hoping for you. And I'm really excited to see what another year of this brings. I know you're listening because you either have some, you have some connection to something in disordered eating, whether it's your relationship with food or something's up with somebody you love, or you treat this in whatever practice you work in and you're here because you want to learn more. So for even more learning, I encourage you to sign up for my mailing list. That is going to be in a link in the show notes and you can learn so much more. I send tips and thoughts and stories and all different things that are pretty helpful, I'd say, if you're struggling or know someone who's struggling with disordered eating. This week's episode is with Laura Pamillo. Laura is the owner of Nutrition for Everybody. So that is a practice in the city, a nutrition practice in the city. And when I say city, I mean Manhattan. So in my little New York City bubble, when we say the city, we mean Manhattan But if you're in the UK or you don't live in my little tiny New York City bubble, then maybe that isn't implied because there are various other cities that can meet the city. So I mean, New York City or Manhattan. Anyways, Laura has over 25 years of experience working with people suffering from eating disorders. Right now in her practice, she treats every kind of eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, ARFIT, night eating syndrome. I mean, everything. Laura is really good at what she does. And so when someone comes to her with all the complications that every individual comes with and comorbidities, et cetera, she looks at the person as an individual and everything that's going on. So she's a knack for really putting all these pieces together and helping people work toward whatever recovery means to them. I love the way that Laura's brain works because It is her understanding that people know a lot. And I think that this is very common when people go to any form of dietitian, especially when they're struggling with an eating disorder. They know a ton. They've done the research. I mean, like that's basically the point of their eating disorder. But her work is trying to bridge the gap between what they know and behavior change. So actually doing what's good for them. She wants the people she works with and really everyone to cultivate a positive and pleasurable relationship with food and eating and feel pretty comfortable in their skin. So everybody has a unique body. We're not saying that somebody should change their body, but our aim is mostly to feel comfortable in your body. I'm very excited about this conversation. It's something that we've talked about, Laura and I have talked about before. And I wanted to bring all of you into this conversation because I think intuitive eating, which is, by the way, something that both of us really appreciate and subscribe to and sort of used as a foundation for our work, that while we do really appreciate the work of intuitive eating, part of what's been going on 
currently is sort of a, a very boxed way of thinking of intuitive eating. So for example, intuitive eating is the only way to do it. And otherwise you have a terrible relationship with food or you're on a diet or really any one of the 10 principles that we're saying, or a lot of people are saying that if you follow intuitive eating, only a few of the steps like hunger fullness, it just becomes a diet because you don't incorporate the rest of them. And I think the conversation today is basically built on the premise of nuance. We have to understand that every single person is an individual and every single person is different and intuitive eating is a framework. So you obviously have to make it work for you and that it is going to look entirely different for the next person. You know, it won't look the same for me as it does for Laura and it won't look the same for you, but that it is our understanding or, you know, as practitioners, we do try to work with people in general to work toward intuitive eating. And when we think about that, maybe intuitive eating is not the end all and be all for everyone. And I think when we have this conversation, just for you to keep in mind, it is my understanding that our focus primarily when we talk about intuitive eating is not necessarily the answer is somebody who is actively struggling with a pretty serious eating disorder. And when we say eating disorder, we mean the subtypes anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Because as much as we like to lump eating disorders into one category, they are not all the same. Just because somebody struggles with binge eating doesn't mean that their problem is exactly the same as someone with anorexia, even though we do know that binging and restricting are very connected. Those are two different diagnoses. Those are two different experiences. And the level of seriousness is on a continuum. So somebody who struggles with anorexia or bulimia, that's more on the quote serious side of the spectrum, the kind of treatment is going to look very, very different. So I do understand that this podcast is pretty general. So we're talking about generalized ideas and it's hard to have these conversations that are based on nuance when we're trying to talk to the general population. So I really hope that you come at this conversation with your critical thinking hat and that you do understand when we talk about some of the limitations, if you will, intuitive eating, this is not to say that intuitive eating doesn't work. That's to say that intuitive eating might not be the best answer for every single person out there as Evelyn Tribley and Elise Rush have dictated, meaning like they're sort of the original authors of intuitive eating. And Laura's going to talk about how the idea has been out there before and how people have shifted. So it's not just this one book that's the Bible. And I want for you to think about your life and the people who you love as an individual. And does this make sense for this particular individual? So let me end my monologue and have Laura join me so that you can hear some of her thoughts directly from her. Thank you so much for joining me, Laura. I'm so excited to finally do this. I'm glad you're here. Oh, thank you. Me too. So we're talking about some nuances about intuitive eating today. And first of all, I'm really glad I'm talking about it with you because you have decades of experience and you have seen basically everything. So You've seen years of this and history of this. So I'm very excited specifically to be talking to you about this. But I think it's really important because the idea of intuitive eating has become this sort of 
Bible for any sort of disordered eating and eating disorder recovery. And while intuitive eating itself has a lot of nuance, and I think that we can't generalize anything with intuitive eating, there are times when it is maybe not that appropriate. So can you talk maybe a little bit about when that's the case and why? So I firmly believe that intuitive eating should not be used with anyone in the early stages of treatment, which I would call fully up to two years, who has any version of the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa, whether restrictive binge purge subtype or bulimia nervosa. And then all of the eating disorder unspecified that comes along with those two types of conditions. It simply doesn't make scientific sense. It is something that's doable, but it's not doable in that population. If you go through the 10 steps, half of them, as you, if you, I mean, you can go through one at a time, but as you go through them, you can come up with countless reasons why that principle doesn't make sense with someone who is actively engaged in eating disorder and with the common comorbidities that go along with these types of eating disorders. So do you think it would be useful to go through them? Sure. So first, let's just, of course, we'll just start, start at the top. The first one, and I am using Triboli and Resch's intuitive eating, the revolutionary anti-diet approach, the fourth edition, reject the diet mentality. For the last line, I'm not going to, I can if you like, but I'm not going to read everything that it says. I'm going to read the point, read the last line, which says, if you were a failure every time a new diet stopped working and you gained back all the weight, if you allow even one small hope to linger that a new and better diet, and I want to be crystal clear here, for all of this conversation, we are talking about a weight loss diet. The concept of diet means anything, high fiber diet, high protein diet, vegetarian diet. So this is a weight loss diet that is being referred to in, in this book. Uh, it, excuse me, that a better diet or food plan might be lurking around the corner. It will prevent you from being free to rediscover intuitive eating. Rediscover. And the idea, and I'm focused primarily on the United States of America, many, many, many people never had intuitive eating skills to begin with. Yes, were they likely born with them? The majority of people, yes, they were. But science shows that you can stop being an intuitive eater at around four. So this is pre-K. Wow. Okay. So what do you think that's about? Well, how come people might be born potentially maybe with intuitive eating skills and as early as four be like zapped away? Well, because there's so many different the number, the multitude of factors that go into how human beings eat, it's huge. The number one way that people eat based on the environment, and then there's many, many examples of what that means, because that's still a very huge, huge topic. Then you have habit. Habit is the number one reason how people eat. Habit drives eating behavior more than any other behavior on the planet. So the child is going to eat based on the habits of the, whoever provides the food. And we know, we talk about the idea, oh, you should let a child eat whenever they say that they're hungry. And 
So if a child wants a snack, children do need more food, but when a child wants a snack, you want to honor that rather than sort of old school mentality was wait for dinner. You, you're going to boost your appetite. We do want to respond to hunger and fullness cues, but then there's reality of a family who can't, if you have four kids at home, you can't cater to four kids and make dinner and have right. four people on <laughs> four different snacks. So the reality is, is that they do have to wait. And sometimes they can't honor their hunger in the moment. They have to wait another hour, could be two hours until dinner is served. And those conditions break the hunger and fullness. We know that breastfeeding, even most uh, bottle-fed babies, they are intuitive eaters. And they'll take, be on the breast for a long time or a very short time, and then they're done. But over time, the reality of life gets in the way of that. So hunger and fullness cues in America are not at all what we eat based on. And that's not my opinion. That's countless amounts of research that we are not, we do not, we are externalized eaters. And that goes back to 200,000 years ago. I mean, we know that we're externalized eaters. The number one, I'm sure you're familiar with the studies that talk about how we eat more when we're around family, friends, and the more people literally at the table, the more people will eat. So you have all these externalized behaviors, of course. And then the visual appeal of food we know that we are overwhelmingly like sensory experience that we humans like sugar and fat and high calorie foods. So this was a survival mechanism that doesn't serve us in our, in our world because we have an abundance of food. Although this is a separate issue for another time, but we're going to see a I'm sorry to say probably some horrible things that are going to come out of what looks like major food shortages this time next year in America. But that's a topic for another time, but that will actually change things, unfortunately. Yeah. So let me ask you, you're sort of talking as if intuitive eating is not appropriate for anyone. No, because I believe that you can learn. I like to be very literal and specific. Learning hunger and fullness. Like I have my own, I'm putting this in air quotes, intuitive eating guidelines that I use within my practice and no disrespect to these two remarkable dietitians, but the concept of what was called a non-diet approach has actively been a lot. It's been alive and well since the eighties, more fringe, but literally, I don't know if you are authors like Janine Roth, there's a author, Sandra Ray, who has a book called The Only Diet There Is. And that one is very magical, spiritual, but this concept of a non-diet approach is in no way new. It's just these, Trevoli and Rush put it on the map. They had a successful book, but there's countless work on this topic that, like, as I said, from the 80s. So this isn't really a new idea. It's just current and very in your face and certainly with the internet that would be more so so but no what, what is probable i didn't answer your question is really really trying to do everything to help my intuitive my non-diet approach is are there are 11 guidelines but they're all aimed at helping someone recognize hunger physical 
and recognize physical fullness because we also know there's emotional hunger. So even going back to say somebody who is suffering from anorexia nervosa, binge, uh, not binge eating, uh, bulimia nervosa, the hunger fullness cues is definitely an issue, especially with someone who has disregarded their hunger cues or fullness cues for a long time. They might not even be in touch with them. So saying, oh, only when you're, when you're hungry is basically uh, setting them up for malnutrition. Exactly. It doesn't work. That's why it doesn't work at all with restrictive anorexia nervosa because these are people and we've got at least you know, early data, but compelling data about the fact that it is very related to the reward system in the brain. Anorexics, people who meet the criteria for anorexia nervosa have a brain reward system that is actually rewarded through the absence of food, which is incredibly uncommon, which is why these are lower, you know, less common illnesses. They seem common in our world. This is what I did for a living. But from statistically, anorexia nervosa is about 3% of the population, less than that. And obviously, it depends on different age groups. And bulimia nervosa, it could be up to 10%. So we know that you can't use physical hunger because even people who diet and go on restrictive weight loss diets, regardless of body size, eventually your body gets used to it. Otherwise, we couldn't manage human survival. If we, people were agonizing, had agonizing hunger, we've had... So what winds up happening is that you get used to it. So the hunger cues go away, and it doesn't take that long. And realize that there are other people where, no, their experience is that they will... The hunger will become intolerable, which is really where this specific book, Intuitive Eating, is best suited is specifically for people who have been on weight loss diets. That I, I think there's so much, so much positive about around that. It's just I'm talking as an eating disorder professional that a lot of programs are right. If you look online, they're saying they're working with intuitive eating in inpatient treatment. So you're dealing with a person who had to go to white hospital, had to live in a program 24/7, and you're going to talk about honoring hunger, making peace with food. Making peace with food is, is another one. And it says, give yourself unconditional permission to eat. I can't think of a single thing in life that we have unconditional permission for. If you look at any behavior, like brushing your teeth. Okay, everyone should brush their teeth. I don't know, they say two times a day. So people probably do it six. Somebody does it every other day. But if you're brushing your teeth, 22 times a day, that's probably a problem. Everything in life is degrees. So we can't move from rigid diet mentality to ever unconditional permission to eat. I mean, it's just not reasonable. And I think that very often when people read that, perhaps, you know, just sort of jumping in without anything else, which is problematic also, then they, then they experience the chaos of, I just couldn't stop. And perhaps there are a lot of other factors, you know, just sort of the restrictive aspect of, you know, how food seems in their brain, et cetera. But you're talking about people who are in the process of either refeeding or renourishing themselves or just consistent eating that hasn't been a thing for them, which is is almost dangerous to go down this path. Certainly, you know, the whole point of being in a program for, again, there are exceptions, but for the majority of people in treatment programs, is 
weight restoration. So yes, we, the treaters, the providers, the treatment professionals are absolutely giving them unconditional permission to eat. But now unconditional permission to eat, I understand is within the guideline of paying attention to hunger and fullness within the intuitive eating guidelines. But in programs, that's not the way. They're literally supposed to feel over full. I talk about it all the time. Over fullness, if you recognize it, is associated with waking. Uncomfortable fullness, and I'm not talking about psychologically uncomfortable, is associated with waking. And that's what we want to have happen. So they can't tune in and forget hunger. Hunger doesn't exist for these people. Like they're not hungry and they're certainly not hungry on three meals and three snacks within an institutionalized program of 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And that's generous. Most food service departments do not operate 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. I'm being very generous that they're having a eight o'clock snack, but they could be having dinner at 4.30 in some of these programs, which is not real life. So let's talk about the weight for a second, because in this sort of field of eating disorder professionals, and and, you know, a lot of us do branch out to more disordered eating. So sure, people who could benefit from intuitive eating, we like to neutralize weight as much as possible. And this is sort of like health at every size, which is again, nuanced and not promoting that you are healthy at every size, but I digress. Either way, we try to neutralize weight that that's not the important thing. That's not the factor of health that we're looking at. But especially if someone's in a program and they're malnourished, then we almost need to focus on the weight. But then we say the other way, you can't focus on it. But if you're too underweight, then you can focus on it. What's your take on this piece, the weight piece? I am still a huge advocate of weights again absolutely in populations that are in treatment programs. There's no argument to me around that with adorexia nervosa subtypes and bulimia nervosa again, because the weight is a metric. If you have diabetes, we care about what your hemoglobin A1C looks like. We care about what your blood sugars look like, and we need that information in order to properly medicate or make food recommendations. So we have these Weight is a vital sign. We literally weigh children at birth. I'm sure there will be a movement to stop doing that. But at this point, we know that weight correlates with health, but not exclusively. So in no way am I saying weight is the single most important thing, but we need an objective metric. And you cannot use self-reporting in disordered eating because if then the person who's saying to you, I'm not hungry, I feel fine, and they're five foot six and 95 pounds, well, then you just have to shrug and say, well, they said they're fine. And they said they're intuitive eaters. I eat when I'm hungry. I'm not hungry. I don't eat. I'm intuitive. Is there a metric that is of concern? So let's say like, again, the movement to disregard BMI charts and that that's not founded in medical science. Like, is there, where do we add it in as significant information? Well, I think... Every piece, every data point is relevant and useful. So you can look at body mass index along the very large spectrum of it's basically uh, on a bell curve, loosely a 25th to 75th percentile. That's what the BMI represents for weights. But we know that waist to hip ratio is a hugely important metric that no one uses. I mean, it's just, it's not, I don't know why it's not practical. 
but it's not. And I understand you're touching people and it's uncomfortable. But in a, in a clinical setting, I think it would be appropriate, not an outpatient setting. But waist to hip ratio is so much more important than body weight. And of course, you need to look at body composition. And by the way, when I'm talking about, I don't think this is really going to come up so much today, but when I'm talking about weight in terms of potentially someone be living in a larger body, I'm specifically talking about only fat cell size, excuse me, body fat percentage. I am not talking about the pure number on the scale. We know that the number itself, without being able to know what percentage of body fat compared to mean body mass, isn't particularly relevant. And we can't know, I mean, bodybuilders can weigh numbers that look like you're obese, but they have huge amounts of lean body mass and their fat percentage can be normal to actually quite low. But again, that's a very population that's unrelated to what we're discussing right now. Yeah, just as an aside, is there a way to test that? How do you... Oh, I'm sure. There's, there's bioelectrical impedance is really... And, and they work. I would just say they don't work. Well, they work with one consistent individual getting on one scale barefoot that says it takes your fat percentage. Is it going to be perfect if you went to something like St. Luke's Roosevelt and they have very detailed testing that you could get done here in New York? But it's going to be close enough. You're going to be able to see if it says it's 26%, okay, maybe it's 24, maybe it's 28, but that person can see change over time. So it's still useful as, uh, unless someone is doing it on multiple different measuring tools, which would be unlikely. So we have that and... And it's clear there are other metrics I'm just trying to think of. Is there anything that I majorly miss? But really, I think the waist to hip ratio is a, is a very important piece. And as I said, the body fat percentage. And I think there's what I call reasonableness. So when you have someone who has a BMI of 35, which is between the obese and morbidly obese category, it's reasonable to say that there are going to be health implications directly related to that BMI, that it is not all, all related to shame, poor access to healthcare for people living in larger bodies, or certainly being embarrassed when they go to the doctor where every single complaint they have is focused on their weight, when that's clearly not true. But it's reasonable to say this, this is not a normal weight. So there is something going on with their eating that needs to be tended to. And to ignore the weight as valuable, which is where the trend seems to be going right now, at least in certain communities, I think that really is a mistake. But I want to go back to the idea that the problem with saying, okay, we think that they should shrink fat cell size, that's what I mean by weight loss. How? How? How do they do it? Rigid diets don't work, but I firmly believe that there are things that do work. And that is, again, related to hunger, related to fullness. And I strongly believe, which I know these authors do not, in, I'm going to call them rules, because I think there's rules and guidelines, which is what I was talking about toothbrushing before, is that there are reasonable rules and guidelines for almost all human behavior. And when you're way outside of that, that's typically means that you have a diagnosis of mental illness. Yeah. So what are some examples of the rules that are helpful? And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, we're talking more toward the binge eating side of the spectrum, which is 
you know, separate. Well, okay. So if we're talking about binge people, or we well, could I, not, I, that was just to yeah, clarify I, for I myself. Think that, I think that these, I think that these guidelines work for everyone. When I send their guidelines, I absolutely positively believe that people who understand, we're talking about people who have disordered eating. Okay. So that's, that's the population that we're talking about that the minimum, the minimum amount of times that they should eat every day, I believe is four. That doesn't mean they can't have three meals and three snacks, which would be six. But my guidelines say that you must eat four times a day. You must have breakfast. There's so much science and not research driven, but anecdotal information about the benefits of breakfast. But there is also research about the fact that it actually improves glucose metabolism and insulin response by specifically by having breakfast and having a carbohydrate breakfast. Oh my God. I have so many questions that are for another time on intermittent fasting and keto and you shouldn't have a, oh my God, we can go off. But like, you're basically saying you don't agree with that. The science doesn't support that. Which, which doesn't support what? I just, I'm not so sure about the question. The intermittent fasting, like skipping breakfast and like cutting out carbs and things like that. I, (laughs) intermittent fasting that has research behind it is based on a 12 hour fast that one would have while they're sleeping. I will say, and I know some of your listeners are not going to like this, there is credible science around this kind of intermittent fasting. And there's data that's not from other countries, but you have to realize, so that means if you last eat at 8 p.m. and you wake up at 8 a.m., that's your fast. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever to fast during the day. And I'm not getting into any more dramatic fasting. The dad is on 12 hours and there's no reason to believe that 10 hours couldn't be mm-hmm. helpful. Okay. But that, that's, that's really... Either way, and again, it's, we're talking about a very specific group of people that clearly would not be people that I would recommend intermittent fasting for, for any, I mean, their, their psychology would supersede their, the benefit, any supposed benefits of intermittent fasting. It just wouldn't make sense. You don't want to do that from a behavioral, from a habit standpoint. Again, you wouldn't want to use anything to do with intermittent fasting. And I agree completely with, again, with the book, no foods or off limits. I completely support that along with eating for pleasure. I think that's incredibly important. And the other elements that affect hunger and fullness that that are in my guidelines have to do with absolutely making sure that you're getting the right amount of sleep because sleep is so connected to appetite regulation, specifically hunger. The more you don't get proper REM sleep, the hungrier people are. And that needs to again be supported by the preliminary research. And I don't think, well, the other great thing that they don't specifically say, but certainly we agree on this in, in the intuitive eating book, is there's no such thing as a food mistake. If you follow my guidelines, for instance, if, and you ate four times a day, times seven days a week, you have 28 opportunities a week for the rest of your life to help you figure out hunger, help you figure out fullness. And you can't make a mistake. What could you do? There's no such thing as a food mistake. What could happen? There's nothing. There's no instantaneous response. 
And I'm not going to, and of course you can say, oh, what about peanut butter if you have a nut allergy? Okay, we know that there are exceptions, but we're not going to go through every possible exception. But you can eat anything you want, but not in any portion size. And that is the piece where I separate significantly from intuitive eating. I understand that is not their intention. Clearly, when you read the book, they're not saying, oh, eat whatever you want whenever you feel like it. But that is how I think some of the guidelines are being perceived, that just there's no, no limitation on anything. And I, I don't agree with that. I think I still firmly support the idea that weight matters. And we know it matters in anorexia nervosa. If you look at morbidity, clearly people at lower weights are more likely to die. That is not exclusively true because there are certainly exceptions to bulimia nervosa, but overwhelmingly bulimia nervosa, typically most people are in a normal body weight. They're in a normal BMI, that 25th to 75th percentile. There are always exceptions to everything, but those are people at a, a more normal weight. But with anorexia nervosa, it's much more complicated with malnutrition. And then we have atypical anorexia nervosa now, which disregards the weight. And yes, the starvation in atypical anorexia is still huge because the science of human starvation has overwhelming evidence about how much it disturbs brain chemistry, food preference, the pace of eating. I mean, the biology of human starvation by Ansel Keys, I think is probably the most perfect research that we have on that, plus studies from prisoners of war, obviously the Holocaust, that it is a trauma to be starving. It is a real psychological and physiological trauma. So starvation doesn't work, even short-term starvation with this goal of so far, so-called necessary weight loss. And that's the piece of how do you find something in the middle, which, as I said, I do believe there are options. We can either pivot to talk a little bit about intuitive eating when it's not indicated for people, maybe not necessarily with an eating disorder, a severe eating disorder, but more so like we talked about the externalized factors, food insecurity and like a financial situation, and then talking a little bit about what treatment looks like if you can't afford it, just because I think that would be interesting. Do you want to talk about that stuff? Do you want to stay here? What do you, what are you thinking? Sure. All right. So you lead and I'll follow. Okay. Awesome. I think it's pretty clear, especially where you stand on intuitive eating being contraindicated for somebody who is in active eating disorder or early on in recovery. So putting that population aside, what about intuitive eating that potentially isn't appropriate for someone who isn't in recovery? And I guess I'm referring mostly to our conversations about means and financial access, just things like, let's say, for example, if you're in the mood for something, but I don't know, food is crazy expensive these days and it just doesn't make sense for your budget or something like that. So maybe talk a little bit about the idea that intuitive eating might not actually be feasible for some people. Yes, intuitive eating is certainly pieces of it are feasible, but when you're looking at people where resources are an obstacle, there's so much data around that. So what we know is that 
if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, where at the bottom is food, clothing, shelter, safety, when you don't know how you're getting the next meal, or certainly if there's a very specific amount of pasta that was cooked for a family of five, you can't, oh, I don't like this pasta. I don't want it this way. And you can't, and they ha- there's no trust. There's no ability to trust that their needs will be met. So there's a constant starvation, a constant hunger. The idea of pleasure, the pleasure that usually in lower, po- lower income populations is derived from the convenience. So the pleasure is cheap, fast, affordable, fast food. And it makes sense because for a dollar, you can get one McDonald's cheeseburger. You certainly can't buy a single vegetable for a dollar. And how is that meeting the caloric needs of a family? So the idea that of a lot of the intuitive eating principles just really not for that population. The idea is you're looking at something, again, in front of Maslow's hierarchy, for people who are looking for fulfillment. And they, they've already covered the first three stages along the pyramid. So the intuitive eating is for people who have you know, higher needs for joy, pleasure, novelty, free time. And, and it just doesn't... Be, it really, I just think overwhelmingly intuitive eating is, is just, I, I honestly can't think of a way that it really works on any level. I think the principles would be fundamentally lost because you're dealing with literally how you secure food and you don't know from day to day. And you're looking at simple things, transportation. I mean, the cost of food, which you just mentioned, that's going to, that's a horrible issue right now. But there are so many pieces that you really just have to do what is easy, convenient, that you can afford. End of story. And that's it. So what does someone do if, let's say, they're at the crossroads? They have an eating disorder history or they're, I don't know, any form of disordered eating. They need, need to heal from whatever that is but they also don't necessarily have the means to go out and honor whatever their craving is. And they're definitely not going to get that like $15 smoothie because they're in the mood for it because that's just ridiculous. So what would someone do A, for treatment and B, for food if they're stuck in the middle of both of these? Okay, so treatment winds up typically being with one practitioner. Unfortunately, there's still some resources. Though again, right now, let's get out of because of COVID. Every resources is every system in America in mental health care and eating disorders is overwhelmed. But you typically they would have one practitioner who has to make all global recommendations, being attending to basic needs feeling secure, feeling listened to, feeling understood. You're not getting into the complexities of their disordered eating and all the science. It's unnecessary. You want that person to be heard, understood, listened to, respected. And then from there, you can recommend certain books that they can get from the library, obviously perhaps things they can get online, and some very basic information. As I said, if you 
most people would do well if they could try to eat four times a day. May actually not be realistic either, maybe closer to two or three. But you have, I mean, there has to be some planning around it. And okay, so there's two pieces there's the the treatment aspect with eating disorders. Again, we, both of us, I can say this, I think for both of us, that we work with the privileged population and that, that, that's, that's the end of that story. So we, I can't, there is no question that it is virtually impossible to get treatment for an eating disorder if you don't have resources in America. If they realize, except for diabetes, AIDS, kidney disease, majority of nutrition services are not covered, period. And people who have insurance, that is, that covers them, insurance is a fortune that, again, is no way possible. No one's getting covered unless you have the, those illnesses that I just described. Certainly not for eating disorders. So dietitians are out. So you're looking for a therapist that can help support that person and make as many reasonable recommendations as possible. And there are resources for therapists who need to make nutrition recommendations, but all of the resources are limited. It's just a horrible, sad situation. There's, I, I can't say what to do. I don't have the answer. Even if you have Medicaid, the availability of Medicaid doctors and Medicaid doctors that are going to be focused on the eating disorder, they're not. When it comes to triage and prioritizing, well, not going to prioritize eating disorders unless you are in a life-threatening situation. So again, we're dealing with an issue that there's disordered eating is rampant throughout America, but full-blown eating disorders in generally speaking are you're going to get the disorder of binge eating disorder, not anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa in lower income populations. This is not exclusively so, but the ability to say, I'm not going to eat that, I don't want that, the anorexic mentality is unlikely to happen in situations where food is already limited for you. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say that for somebody in that situation, there maybe are some tips, but for the most part, it's going to be an individualized process. And then anything that you hear on a podcast or read in a book or, I mean, any sort of general information might not fit for your personal life if you don't have the means or if there's something else going on. And so really looking at your individual situation and what makes sense for recovery at that point is going to be the only way to go. Exactly. And it, 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 I mean, every, all health related issues, the treatment is relative to your resources. We could say that about cancer, heart disease. We could say, it, I mean, there's no question about it. So if you, so I mean, it's just part of a much, much, much bigger systemic issue. There is within the eating disorders that cause the highest rates of mortality. It generally is associated with high educational level of the parents. That is a variable that is, again, unpopular to talk about. That, it's not so much money, but money goes with education. But literally, the educational level of the parents, the higher the education of the parents, the more likely that you will get. But that anorexia nervosa is drastically more common 
in families where the parents are highly educated and where education specifically is, is highly prized and valued. And it fits because if everything else in your life is perfect, kind of, from an outsider's standpoint, from an outsider looking in to a person who has a lot of means going to top university, then the desire to fit the perfect mold of so the so-called perfect mode of body size they want everything needs to be perfect that's true yeah well obviously i can talk to you for hours more and perhaps we can get you on if i can uh, squeeze into your schedule again later but first of all thank you so much for doing this i appreciate your time and your wisdom before i let you go can you share with our listeners where they can find you if they want to learn more about you or some of your work I'm at Nutrition for Everybody. That's my website. And it's nutritionforeverybody.com. You can also look up Laura Noel. And I hope in the very near future to have resources, online resources for people that can afford my services or services. Ooh, looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a work in progress, but I'm trying. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you again. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.